Hello and welcome to Scopy Radio. My name is Daniel Johansson. And I'm Maureen Smith. And today we are joined by singer-bassist Lynn Rye. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. Of course. Oh, we're so glad to have you here. Yeah. So uh, I always love telling the story of how I found out about a person because that's it's always just weird, face, either Facebook or internet. I'm enjoying when it's not Facebook now. Mm-hmm. I'm trying really hard to do that less because it is like obviously a great networking tool. But I always love when I discover someone's rad work and it's not through Facebook. Like so, I we're having Joshua Virtue, who's a rapper, on the show in a couple weeks. I think. I think April fifth or sixth or something mm-hmm. like that. But like a really awesome tool on SoundCloud is. I think I don't know if it was because you can. I think you can see someone's liked stuff, or you can see what someone retweets. Because you can, because there's like a feed almost, and people can kind of like not retweet, obviously, but re share. Yeah. Right. Thank you. Um, and so I, I think he had. I don't because he's also been featured on one of your tracks, but I'm not even sure it was one of the ones that he was featured on. Mm-hmm. Like I think he, it was like a different one. And then, um, and then for whatever reason, the succulent on your album art, like drew me to i was like oh that's fun and then i listened to your music and i was like oh this is awesome because it's very it harkens very much to like a style a genre of music that i have not found an artist that i like in recently in the kind of like because uh, what it is is it's it it comes a lot from well you know what i'm gonna stop explaining it i'm gonna <laughs> actually if you would mind would you mind kind of introducing our audience to your music sure so um, yeah, where to begin? Uh, Roots of Rye is an album that I just released on January 28th, and it is just a series of songs that I did um, for an experiment, basically. I composed a song every week for 11 weeks, mm-hmm. and I made a one-minute video for each song. Oh, I haven't even seen that. Yeah, there's a whole other dimension to this project, and I was not intending to make an album from these songs. I was just in my bedroom making songs keeping myself honest with this schedule of once a week Mm -hmm. and then eventually i started to reach out to other people to collaborate Um, but i didn't have it in my mind as an album and so i really allowed myself to experiment with genres with um, beat making with all these different sounds so i i kind of call it a post-gender (laughs) post-genre album Um, and i it's a lot of it's just bass vocals and Ableton, really. Um. Be, yeah, because the first track, like I remember um, I was playing it for Maureen earlier today, um, and the first track is very like piano and singing, you mm-hmm. know? like, and, But then when you kind of get into more of what you've done, it's, it is so uh, genre blurring, not even blurring, it's just like it, it exists in an organic sense. And I think that, is so refreshing in in this in uh, in music making, um, so yeah. What the and the other thing is the the one a week thing did read very immediately, which I think is super interesting. Like I always love when there's an artist. Uh, there's another um, MC. His name's Tobuigua. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. He's he also did a weekly um, Sunday. He does it every Sunday, like, would put out a video for, like, a year or something like that. Like, mm-hmm. maybe he started that, like, two years ago. Um, but it's such an interesting thing to do that to your art making, to put a practice in like that. Like, mm-hmm. what drew you to the wanting to release something once a week? The, the once a week's schedule for me, I think, 
despite the fact that it sounds very limiting, mm-hmm. actually was really freeing to me because a lot of the projects that I've done in the past have been have required so much ahead of time planning, so much intensive, detail oriented lining up the ducks in a row, things like that, that I wanted to force myself to be really loose, actually. And just giving myself a week to do each song was liberating, <laughs> truly I, liberating. I can totally get that. I mean, I, th- I think that there's a lot of pressure put on us as artists that if we release something out into the world, it has to be perfectly polished and you know, like, oh, what if somebody stumbles upon it and it's not perfect? Mm -hmm. But I think, yeah, like releasing yourself of that being like, yeah, I'm doing this once a week. Mm -hmm. Like it's, yeah, I totally get the liberation of that. And I think too, part of it was because one of my goals for this project was to learn how to record myself and to use Ableton. I had never used Ableton Mm -hmm. before this project. And I think I understood that it could be such a rabbit hole (laughs) that if I was forcing myself to actually release something that I was making with this new tool, uh, that it would save me (laughs) from kind of a just a unending spiral Mm -hmm. of learning how to make beats and learning how to use Ableton. And what is Ableton? Ableton is a recording software. Um, So I think Ableton, Logic Pro and Pro Tools are kind of the three big recording mm-hmm. softwares that most people use mm-hmm. um and but ableton from my understanding and i so obviously i use a lot not obviously to the audience but obviously <laughs> to you i use logic um just i it's what i learned but i've been playing a bit with audition um but from my and i've never actually used ableton but my understanding is that it does it is it lends itself more to like music production definitely it's not necessarily the program that i would choose to record you know a jazz quintet mm-hmm. but if you're a beat maker right yeah it's like and yeah which is is um that's the, the always the thing that's super interesting to me with audio programs is how you know like you can you in any of them you can pretty much do what you're trying to but they are definitely catered to different kind of a different kind of audio person each definitely. one um where was I gonna? Oh, the other piece that I think is really interesting with the because I think a lot of people will sometimes go under under like try to undertake this, you know. I'm gonna every day I'm gonna do this or once a month I'm gonna do that. But I think it's super interesting that you know the 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 ones that you released like it, it's not it was like eleven weeks is that right? Mm-hmm. And like that's almost three months. Mm-hmm. You know that's like a giant chunk of time to be like I'm going to do like how um what are kind of the things that went well for you as far as it not just being one or two like what once it started you know and you were kind of in it how did you were you able to sustain so the the first few i had all this energy and i was committed to the project and then i got viral meningitis and strep throat back to back Oh gosh. And was bedridden for a month. And so then it was, you know, what else are you going to do in bed mm-hmm. but mess around on your computer? Right. So y- you wouldn't believe how much of this album I made literally in bed. Mm-hmm. Um, people talk about bedroom pop, but this is like actual literal bed <laughs> pop. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And even the, the song Contagious um, I made during, during part of the strep throat era <laughs> the step throat time when, when I couldn't sing at all and so I, I could only really talk mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. into the microphone and that's why it's the song contagious is just me talking um cool and so that kind of sustained me for some part of it um just having nothing else to do in in bed and then it was um once i reached december that's when i decided that every song going forward was going to be a collaboration i called it duo december <laughs> mm-hmm. for myself and the energy of being able to bring other people into the project i think that was when i realized that it should be an album it was actually the song with joshua virtue yeah that was the turning point for me when i said oh my gosh this is this is turning into something beyond what i imagined it would yeah what was the decision to like just to kind of delve more into that like what was the pros and cons and the decisions of moving that in that in that um collaborative space let's see the the pros was that it it helped bring authenticity to the genre bending yeah because it could be two people's musical worlds existing in the same space the the cons is that collaboration is scary yeah mm-hmm. and you give up control and you open yourself up to to risk mm-hmm. um, and i love it i'm i love being a collaborator um i think most bassists do <laughs> yeah but as a as a composer and a singer and, and a songwriter and everything i i love the collaborative process um but you i you know because we also i imposed this we only have a week mm-hmm. structure on my collaborators as well Mm-hmm. and everyone who I collaborated with rose to the occasion. Well, and I, so the other piece that's very uh, interesting with your work is that you've brought the, a sound to, um, to like the very heavy sampling tradition that we're living in the, in the last like decade or so of, um, of pulling into like using Ableton and, and playing with beats and stuff like that. Like, um, do you, did you have a lot of experience with that? Or did you have an understanding of what you would want a project that you were working on to have that influence to sound like before going into it? Or did it surprise you? I think I had built beat making and production up in my mind as being this really kind of far away, inaccessible thing. Um, and I have really been influenced by some incredible beat makers mm-hmm. and and like sampling and things like that for ever since I was, I was a teenager. Um, when I first listened to Bjork's Vespertine album, it changed my world. And I have kind of been worshiping that album ever since. I didn't know you could make beats like that before I listened to that music. Um, and I've always wanted to try my hand at it, mm-hmm. in part because I think I'm a very rhythmic person but I've never been a percussionist and I I have worked so closely with so many percussionists and feel like I've internalized a lot of what they do into my own body, but I just haven't sat down at a drum kit and figured out how to express that in the world. And it was so refreshing to feel like something that was inside of me was finally getting a voice through beat making. That makes sense to me. Like with you being a bassist, um, I grew up in a in a, a band like with my with my dad and some of his friends and th- their bassist was a guy that my dad had taught how to play the bass and what was frustrating is that the guy didn't have a good sense of rhythm oh no and so like I like you having that very percussive mindset and that very like 
really strong rhythmic sensibility makes total sense because like being a bassist you have to have that that pulse that drive you know it's it's you're basically you and the percussion in whatever band are or ensemble or whatever are um really the driving force the pulse of it i think it's so interesting the the concept of a um a singer bassist i don't know i because like you see like with like genesis and stuff you see like you know singer drummers and all of that i don't think that i've like do you have any like singer bassist role models or were there like who are they yeah um well a lot of people don't know that paul mccartney is a singer bassist and sting is a singer bassist and then i one of my kind of idols as as also as a teenager was esperanza spaulding there you go. Well, and because that's the other, <laughs> so um, the other piece that's really, you're a very, a very layered performer in that way because you also play upright bass, right? Mm-hmm. Like I've I seen, pic- I've seen pictures I didn't hear, but so like what? Yeah, can you? I don't think we've actually talked to anyone that. I mean, we've talked to people that play bass, but I'm now doing this thing where like our audience maybe hasn't. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk about that difference and if there is one for you, like how how yeah electric bass versus upright? Yes, sorry. yeah. yeah. Oh, okay, this is this is unleashing such an inner nerd <laughs> in me. Oh, I'm here for it. No, yeah, that's no. the that's the show. <laughs> um, so, how to describe to an audience what the difference is between electric bass and upright bass? I'm gonna get a little metaphysical. I feel like the upright bass is such a physical instrument. It's so physically demanding and you fight the bass for a long time when you learn it there's so much strength that has to be built and almost like consent and cooperation with the instrument (laughs) has to be established before you can sound good um that you're just the bass becomes so much more an extension of your physical body and you have this huge resonating piece of wood pressed up against you the whole time that you're you're trying to transmit your music and your soul through and so for me upright bass is is really intimate in that way and i think because it's so physical people have really unique sounds someone's very deeply personal sound can really come through in the bass um the upright bass um with electric bass that how i view that is um it's like all of the cyborg it's like the cyborg part of my mind like the part machine part human um that i can have all of these textures and sounds and variation at my fingertips and it's so much easier to play Mm -hmm. um it's it's it doesn't involve nearly the kind of technical investment that you have to put in on the upright bass to sound good but it also means the the palette of what you're able to create is really really broad and I think that's part of what I had a lot of fun doing on this album was there's no guitar on the album but there's Mm -hmm. a lot of stuff that sounds like a guitar and that's just me on the bass well because what does because I feel like the bass probably lends itself really well to uh like plugging into your computer I'm trying to think of how else to put that like Mm -hmm. like how is that is that a midi thing um you so electric bass it's easy to record no matter what method you choose. You either put a, a mic near the amp or you have a direct input 
um, into like you have an interface that you just plug the electric bass into upright cool. bass is, is way harder to yeah. record <laughs> yeah absolutely um no that's fascinating um well and the other thing that i want well i want to actually i'm gonna step back for context actually um when did you start playing music did we already touch this on this Mm-mm. no yeah i come from uh, a musical family my mother plays the piano and the organ and she sings and my sister plays the violin and she sings. And so some of my earliest memories are dancing around the living room, singing with my sister while my mom was playing mm-hmm. the piano. So it's always been a part of my life. Um, I only started playing bass in high school. And then and high school was also when I started to, to write songs and to compose. Um, and then, yeah, I've, I've been a, I went to school for music. I was in the jazz program at Indiana University at the cool. Jacobs School of Music, and I'm just a professional musician now. <laughs> I I really that's so fun to me that um, that you have like a traditional and I'm using air quotes because like you know what I mean by that like right yeah um because and I have a master's degree in opera and Maureen also has a degree in, in opera so like it's funny to me though it's always the best when I meet people like that through things like SoundCloud, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, what, I want to kind of touch on that even further. Like, how, what do you feel as an artist or as an individual, like, opened yourself up to putting yourself out on platforms <laughs> that maybe aren't, I mean, I don't know if, if maybe in jazz it's it's different where it, it is a little more, but I remember that, like, people didn't know what SoundCloud was when I was in school or if or if you did it was where you put your recital so that you could easily send it mm. to your mom you know yeah like, like I have a SoundCloud but it has my undergrad senior recital on it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but there's like such a strong community on SoundCloud mm-hmm. I think what what got me to think of SoundCloud as a good option um, also just to say the, if you've only listened to the music on SoundCloud, that's where I put the weekly demo versions mm-hmm. of the songs, but we did a final mix and, and master of them. I worked with, um, an engineer at classic studios to do cool. one final like mix and nice. master. And so that's available everywhere. That's on iTunes, on Spotify, nice. on Amazon. I, we printed, I printed CDs as well. Um, so you've, you've seen where I chose to kind of incubate the songs <laughs> i am so, so proud i'm so yeah. honored thank you <laughs> soundcloud was my little egg incubator <laughs> for those musical ideas and what got me to to appreciate soundcloud was working with um an organization called one beat um one beat gets some funding from the u.s state department they're not g- involved with the government mm-hmm. but they get some funding from the bureau of cultural and educational affairs to do these programs where they bring musicians from all around the world together to do a residency and tour and I've worked with them multiple times and SoundCloud is how everyone from like the 25 different countries that I've met people from are are all sharing their music like everyone has their stuff represented on SoundCloud even if they do a lot of other stuff on other platforms you always have their SoundCloud page that's so interesting and I didn't have one before I started to get involved with One Beat how did you get involved with One Beat? Funnily enough, it was very coincidental. I was in my last year at Indiana University, and I was already getting some gigs up in Chicago, so I was coming up here about once a month. 
and I was asking people, oh, what are the clubs that I should check out? And someone just said, oh, no matter what is playing, just go to Constellation Club. Oh, cool, yeah. And so I just showed up at Constellation having no idea what was going to be there, and it just happened to be One Beat was passing through on tour and played at Constellation, and I was floored. (laughs) I was Mm -hmm. just absolutely wowed by everything that they had, and I went up afterwards and talked to some of the musicians, and they said, well, the applications for next year's fellowship are opening. You should apply. And I did, and that was the first thing that I did after I graduated was do that one-beat residency. That's so cool. Mm -hmm. That's really fun. Yeah, I love Constellation. I mean, we uh, very rarely are are free on Sundays, but the Sunday, like, I'm always paying attention to whenever they release their program for the next like three months of Sundays. Cause they also do that, that thing of like weekly, you know, where they always have new music every Sunday. Mm-hmm. That's what I, where I know it from. Cause we know like a, quite a few composers that, that submit for that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, no. And I, that's, so let's actually do, since you mentioned Chicago, like what has this city meant to you as an artist? That is something that we ask a lot about, but that's always, it's always interesting. Sure. I think Chicago has given permission to me as an artist to do all of the genre bending that I want mm-hmm. to do. Um, and as what I hope, I'm a very versatile bassist. I play with folk musicians. I play with jazz musicians. I play with hip-hop musicians, rock bands. I mean... I love to do everything and then I soak it all up Mm -hmm. and in my own music I want to be really defiant of these categorizations Um, or I don't necessarily want to be but I think I just have ended up being Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, blurring the lines Um, and Chicago I feel like is such a permissive city for that the scenes that I'm a part of are all blurred Mm -hmm. Uh, the, the scenes blur with each other bleed into one another um, and I think people in the city get really excited about um, cross-pollination. Mm-hmm. Something, now, we've talked a lot about your, you know, life in music. Something that you also do that I find really interesting is a lot of social justice work. Um, would you mind talking about um, your work with the Interfaith Committee for Detained Immigrants? Sure. Um so interfaith committee for detained immigrants does uh, a lot of different things to try to support um, immigrants and refugees in chicago Um, specifically the thing that i'm involved with is um, a lot of people don't know that there are 11 federal detention centers for unaccompanied migrants uh, unaccompanied migrant children Mm -hmm. uh, here in chicago so when a minor is apprehended at the border um, if they are not l- with their biological parents or their, their specified legal guardian, even if they're with an adult who is supposed to be with them, mm-hmm. like a, a sister or an aunt or right. someone, if it's not their their biological parents, they are taken into federal custody and sent throughout the country to these detention centers um, where a lot of information is forcibly ex- extracted Um, They are forced to cooperate with federal authorities about where they come from, what they've been through, who they're trying to be reunited with. Um, The federal government extracts a lot of information from Mm -hmm. these kids and actually deports a lot of adults 
from the information that the kids are forced to give in order to be released from these detention centers. Um, and uh, because the other, the other side of it is that um, any adult who they are supposed to be released to has to give biometric information to the government in order to take custody of the child back, things like that. Um, it's a deeply traumatic experience for most children who go through this. Mm -hmm. Some expect to be going through this. Um, others, for others, it's a shock. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, in, in my opinion at least, um, part of this deeply, deeply problematic and violent carceral mm -hmm. state <laughs> that mm -hmm. we have. Um, so Interfaith Committee for Detained Immigrants is one of the only outside groups that is allowed in to these centers in Chicago. Um, and we visit once or twice a month and have interfaith activities, arts-based activities that we do with the kids. Um, I am also involved with another organization um, that is trying to raise awareness about the fact that these centers exist in Chicago and try to put pressure on um, Heartland Alliance, which is the, um, the organization that has the contract with the federal government. Um, to put pressure on the Heartland Alliance not to renew its contract to continue operating these mm -hmm. facilities in Chicago in the future. And I want to be very clear that I don't, I'm not here speaking on behalf right. of okay. Interfaith Committee for Detained Immigrants. Um, and my work with this other organization that is putting pressure on Heartland Alliance is separate sure. mm -hmm. from that. Um, ICDI is here, is there for accompaniment to try to provide a loving and caring presence inside mm -hmm. those facilities. Um, and then it's Little Village Solidarity Network um, who is trying to raise awareness and put pressure to to change the fact that Chicago houses yeah. <laughs> so many of these detention centers um, that are essentially jailing children. And there's no degree of like gotcha journalism with us with this. Like we, we really appreciate you talking to us about it. But I know that, um, and we can definitely talk about it more, but I also want to offer like a a bridge of conversation that is um, that is more of the artistic side to just in case, I don't know. Like my point being is that like, it is a, a unique thing to be so politically involved. And I say that knowing that in so many ways, um, we've like public discourse has meant has taken politically involved to mean like these are people's lives mm -hmm. like it's very serious mm -hmm. intensely so and i want to i want to recognize that also before i go into my next piece which is you know coming as an artist um it's it's an interesting middle ground where you both are like find yourself under the the name of being politically involved but also you know you're putting out art you're making art and you're thinking about living in in, in some ways it can feel like you're living in two worlds and i'm curious for you if that if that's been an experience that you've had of of that bridge or if you find yourself pretty organically doing the work that you're doing i will say that that's i that's an excellent question and i really appreciate that um, it has gotten significantly more organic since leaving the conservatory. Mm -hmm. When I was in music school and that had a lot more power over the music in my life, it felt a little bit more like being in two worlds. Right. But being a free range adult, yeah. <laughs> especially in Chicago, yes. 
um, it's it's so much more organic. Um, I think it's more organic because just for me as a person, the political is personal and the personal is political. Yeah. And that applies to art <laughs> as well. Mm -hmm. And the community of people who I have chosen to cultivate reflects that as well. So many of the people that I'm collaborating with live the same life that I do. Uh, Sacramento Knox is a great example of that. He's one of the guys who's featured on the album mm -hmm. and he and I both kind of walk the same walk of trying to organize within our communities and be the best artists that we can be and they're not separate. They're yeah. the exact same thing. And I, well, and that to me, I want to kind of harken back to an earlier part of our conversation too, which is um, the collaboration aspect of your work, of your musical work, mm -hmm. because that, you know, because obviously, like being a person where the where the political is personal, I mean, not. I live a very I live a privileged life. I know that, but my point is, is like I like I understand and have heard many activists speak about how the how the uh, the political is personal. Mm -hmm. Um, I I it's readily apparent to me, hearing your music, that that degree has been thought about when you when you apply collaboration and and. You know, because it's, it's interesting, right? Because you want to live in a world, like, you want to build something, or you find yourself, as you put it, building something that is genre-bending. Mm -hmm. um, but it also is intensely considerate of the genres and in, in kind of um, bringing from those experiences in a way that is representative of it. Like, is that... I'm sorry, I basically just answered the question that I'm about to ask. But like, do you, like how had <laughs> how has that thought process been for you? Like, how did you come upon that? And um, yeah, like how has your understanding and and work in the political sphere, air quotes, um, informed your artistic practice? So part of part of my background is that. Um, while I was living in Bloomington and going to school, there was an ensemble that I co-founded um, called the Liberation Music Collective. And we were uh, a 16-piece jazz ensemble, and we wrote protest music, basically. Um, and it was very, um, you know, each song had a specific message that we were trying to communicate or was about a specific person that we wanted to pay homage to. Um, and it was, it was all very tailored and very, um, it, the, the critics who reviewed our CDs and things like that told us that we managed not to be preachy, but at the same time it was preaching. Mm. Like it was, each song was a, a little sermon about some topic, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and I learned so much from that experience and that satisfied a, a certain part of, um, that, that urge to have music be socially active and socially conscious. But I wanted to do something different with this project. I wanted it to be really blurred. I wanted the political and the personal to be this deeply intimate thing that you couldn't really tell uh, the boundaries between. And so I think it had to come from a very personal place. And so on, on this, Roots of Rye album, it's not, I don't really think that I can point to, well, this song is about this topic in society mm -hmm. and that's its message, but it's more like it. it's reflection. It's a reflection of my life being this political artist, this artistic activist, you know, whatever it is that you want to call me. Um, and I feel like the collaborators that I brought in 
we're also bringing that to the table and hopefully hopefully it works hopefully it is a reflection of this life that so many of us live blending a social awareness with an artistic urge something that you mentioned earlier is sticking with me about how you said that it's become easier to be to kind of blend your um your political actions with your music since leaving a conservatory setting what about a conservatory setting because i i had a similar experience of that feeling of liberation once i i you know was also in a conservatory setting and so i'm wondering if you could speak to what about your experience in the conservatory made you feel um as though you had to kind of restrict yourself Oh boy! Um, <laughs> no, well, it's a can of worms. Yeah, ain't that a can of worms? I was literally just about <laughs> to and use I, that. Metaphor. I always love the moments where sometimes I feel very self-conscious about contextualizing with our own lives, but that felt that that moment specifically, like I want to just say, like it always. I realize why. Also, this is also just such a giant tangent. We hadn't said yet. This is the 300th episode of the podcast. Oh yeah, and we'll we'll talk about that later. Muscle time. Yeah. Um. But I what I what I want to say is that like i'm t- using that as a moment to say it's a kind of pull back the me- meta levels of all of this and just say like i'm always appreciative of moments of, lo- of like that where like i would never want to throw an interviewee out to dry of like oh can you make a a giant <laughs> critique of conservatories can real you, quick can you shit talk your alma mater real right quick? no i'm 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 very i'm very <laughs> grateful to have the opportunity to be honest yeah mm-hmm. um and what i'm the most honest that i can be with you is that there's um some of the ways that i was constricted i'm still incredibly grateful for because i was constricted because i was putting my energy and my efforts towards the rigorous training that i was receiving and i was lucky enough to go to a conservatory on a scholarship Mm -hmm. and that was what i was there to do right and so part of the constriction was just i was i had access to this world-class education thankfully you know that right. I, that i was really committed to to doing um and the i had plenty to seek, sink my teeth into in terms of the rigor of the education there the flip side <laughs> <laughs> was that i personally believe that there were some very um either benignly antiquated aspects of the the culture there or toxic <laughs> aspects mm-hmm. of the culture there. Um, and let's just say it how it is. Like, it can be a very toxic environment, especially as a female person mm-hmm. in a male-dominated jazz world. Oh, God. So I was in, yeah, yeah. I was in the jazz program um, <laughs> where there's, when I entered into that program, there were no female faculty. Mm-hmm. And I was the only undergraduate female instrumentalist that'll do it there was one other graduate bassist and i might be remembering wrong that there was another uh person in the graduate program who was who was female and when i partway through the program they added um, a vocal jazz program and so a lot more women right. came into into the program then and they had an assistant professor um, i believe that was her title um who who then came in with that mm-hmm. vocal jazz program but when i started out <laughs> And, and luckily that has that is starting to change it definitely changed at least some over the the years that i was there but i i have such a cachet of stories about what 
that has been like. And well, and I the other thing too, I'm always appreciative of moments like this because one of the things that we've in our time, you know, we started up out uh, interviewing a lot of opera people. Um, it's always fascinating because you know, as a person who was politically engaged, uh, it it was always fascinating of like realizing the degree to which we have to clean up our own house. Mm-hmm. And I and I say that in a sense of like opera's a nightmare of of um like bad political views made uh execution, you know, like where in so many ways like we're seeing it's just it's just really I'm trying so hard to find a question and not make try and make some kind of giant statement about how I'm feeling about classical music. Well, yeah. so I mean, Mike's I I had a similar I you know I wasn't in I went to Peabody Conservatory and mm-hmm. they also have a jazz program, and I was not in that jazz program. I had a, I had an interest in being in it and getting mm-hmm. a because there was an option as a voice major that I could get a jazz minor and I was interested in that at one point because I grew up singing like folk music and bluegrass mm-hmm. and and I found the I was very much being put into a box in my classical music studies in that my teacher told me I was not allowed to sing anything other than opera while I was mm-hmm. there and it was incredibly restrictive and I thought really hard about um, joining the jazz program but it was such a boys club. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was such a boys club. The the pe- the students who were in it were like, you know, always like the last guys at the party and mm-hmm. they were like and you know it can be such like I can't even I can't even imagine. Yeah. And I I I think there's a lot of um a lot of things about conservatory music education, whether it's jazz or opera, that doesn't necessarily have to do with, with, with gender or race or identity politics, but is in like an educational question. Mm-hmm. Um, how do these places of higher education reflect the music world mm-hmm. and the realities of our society mm-hmm. in, in a way, like the example that you gave of not being allowed to sing any other genre of music, right. I feel like. And there, there were things like that of like, you know, the, all of these professors who, who really know what they're talking about, but have been in academia for the last three right. decades or, or whatnot, and have students with very different needs than the bank of expertise that they have. And it's like, how do we match match that? But then some of the things that do have to do with race and sexuality and gender and socioeconomic access and disabilities and things like that, it's like, why are we still struggling mm-hmm. with this? And I'm, mm-hmm. I'm going to say this to you because um, in, I feel comfortable saying this to you in part because the current director of the jazz program actually asked me to come into his office after I graduated and asked for my opinion on some of these things. And so I've already told him this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so, it, you know, I, I feel comfortable saying this publicly as well, but that, you know, jazz musicians in the world at large at least my experience in Chicago and since graduating, have such a bad reputation. They have a reputation of being asshole guys. Mm -hmm. Just like vibey, white, entitled asshole guys Mm -hmm. who people don't want to work with. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And also, going back to your question about having a a foot in both worlds, like because 
Um, I, I do so much stuff that isn't directly related to music. I see how other people are in the world and how other communities work. And like the, yeah, I, I, to, so, I told yeah. this to the director of the jazz program. I said, it, it, it is actually worse in this little subculture that we have. People mm -hmm. actually do treat each other worse here than they do elsewhere in the world. And the type of behavior that you see from men in the jazz world is actually worse than men in other places, which is saying a lot. Yeah, <laughs> um, and yeah, there's just, there's so much there. Yeah. Um, and I, I intentionally took a step away from the jazz world right after I graduated. I still bring so much of that training and that tradition mm -hmm. with me, but I took a step away from the scene. And whenever I tell someone that, there's, they, they say, oh, you must be so much happier. Congratulations, mm -hmm. which is a really weird response. <laughs> Yeah. For the longevity of a really precious American tradition. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It it really, cause yeah, like I. That, cause I I've also made a really like concerted effort to like kind of step back from performing for a while and, yeah, the response of you know that you know, expat I guess musicians get me you know, they're they're like oh welcome it's so much easier like, why does it like it shouldn't be easier like mm -hmm. it sh it should be hard to to decide to take the step back from something that you at one point wanted to devote your life to well i know one thing that um i want to definitely ask you about is and it's something that i've thought about a lot is um because i you know you this was what you led with 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 conservatory which is that in a lot of ways like the traditional there is something to gain from like having something that that is a, a vessel to which to apply that rigor that it that there is like something to which you can you know in, in some ways like structure can be freeing like that is all it's interesting though like it feels sometimes especially looking back at it when you critique it i mean because the the way that that discourse happens that it, it plays out so often is that oh, well, do you just not love it anymore? Or do you mm -hmm. not appreciate it anymore? Um, and it's like, I, I think that there's a degree to which, for whatever reason, the way the discourse goes is that you can't seem to have both things. Like, you can't appreciate the fact that this tradition exists and critique it. Like, mm -hmm. it feels like if you critique it, then you're you're saying, oh, we should just burn it all down. Mm -hmm. And it's like, no. And so I'm kind of curious as far as your, um, you know, in your own kind of work and in our and artistic work and thinking about being post-conservatory, um, has there been a, a, a struggle to, of feeling like, have I left conservatory behind or, or have you felt that, that that's always been with you, the, the training and the mindset around um. being a highly trained musician? I mean, the, the, the parts of that education and specifically some of the amazing people who became my mentors through mm -hmm. that, the, the things that I needed, that they gave me, that they provided me with, and that nourished me, of course, I carry that with me. But in other ways, I, I got the hell out of there. Yeah. <laughs> and I left fast. Mm -hmm. And I didn't <laughs> look back. Yeah. Um, and I was, honestly, I was already... Again, I only had a certain amount of investment in that world, in that scene. And I think one, one anecdote that kind of um, might illustrate that was that um, 
I was still in school when Standing Rock happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was very involved in, um, like, kind of, there was a, a Midwest concerted effort to, um, there's like, a, sorry, this is a long train of thought. There's there's a lot of army auctions, like military surplus auctions that happen in the Midwest. And there was a concerted effort by a lot of activists in the Midwest to just buy up a bunch of supplies that were needed and make continuous caravans mm-hmm. to Standing Rock um, with all this stuff that was easy to access in the Midwest to, to get it to the camps. And so like during Thanksgiving break, that is what I did. I was just there at... Standing Rock and that was so reflective of like so much of the world that I was in outside of this like one part of my life that was contained in the conservatory Mm -hmm. like in a lot of other ways I was Mm -hmm. just kind of you know that was my life and what I was doing and there was a a particularly um, particularly violent violent night that happened at at Standing Rock on November 20th Um, the the Battle of Backwater Bridge is what Mm. some people call it or just um, what, what happened on Backwater Bridge. And I don't have to go too much into detail about that. But the day after that happened, I don't think I talked at all, but I found a broken banjo that some guy named Pickles <laughs> just had in one of the tents. And I played that banjo for such a long time the day after. And it, it, like, it restored my humanity. And I got more out of that broken, tinny banjo than so many of the experiences that conservatory could provide to me. And then the next week I had to go right back into school and it was jarring and dystopian Mm -hmm. (laughs) to have this like bubble, the people who were so invested in this bubble and to feel like there was, there was something that I still needed from that bubble, but at the same time being like, where, where are you in the rest of the world? You know, please, please come. We need people who have instruments and who have music in their hearts in places like Standing Rock. Where are you? <laughs> come, come with me. Like, yeah. come with us. I mean, I don't want to focus it too much on me, but like, we we need these types of musicians and artists and and poets and creative souls in the front lines of the world. It shouldn't have to be so separate. Yeah. Jeez. I feel like that's a really good spot to to, to wrap up, to wrap up. <laughs> there are definitely more things that you you'll you'll have to come back on as you release more music or or just whenever really. i would love to yeah. um thank you so much for being here um the last thing we do with all of our guests is a one minute plug for anything they have upcoming sometimes it's very obvious like making sure to let us know where people should be listening to your music where the best place of that what what place supports you the best mm-hmm. um uh, and also, uh, any we love hearing shout-outs to other folks that are doing dope work or anything that you're consuming, self-care or otherwise, music, movies, TV shows, things like that. Great. Well, I guess I can start with where to find me and my music. Um, the album that we've been talking about all day <laughs> is Roots of Rye, and you can find that on Spotify, iTunes, Amazon Music, Apple Music, Bandcamp. If you want the original demo versions, you can find it on SoundCloud. Um, Lynn Rye is spelled L-Y-N-R-Y-E and you can find me on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook Um, I have a show coming up my next Lynn Rye show is on March 25th at Slate Arts and I'll be playing with the amazing Kyle Paul on guitar and Tommy Carroll on percussion Um, and then after that I'll actually be going back to Bloomington um, for a gig at the Orbit Room um, with the amazing Matt Romy 
and Cole Stover. Matt Romeo and Keys, Cole Stover on percussion. Some people that I would like to name who were collaborators on that album are Joshua Virtue. He's one of my closest creative collaborators. I think he's stunning as an artist, and I'm really mm-hmm. excited that he's coming on your podcast. So mm-hmm. please, all the listeners, watch out for that episode because Joshua Virtue is the future. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, Sacramento Knox, uh, who's based in southwest Detroit. Um, uh, who else? Uh, Sharuk, um, Sher- Sherry, um, Sherry Ahmed, um, who's an amazing, um, actually, criminal justice uh, student at Indiana U- University, but who also is uh, on the album. Um, Kyle Paul on guitar again. Um, and then my family. My family was also on the album. Uh, so love you so much, family. Am I forgetting anyone who is on the album? I, I hope not. It seems not. It seems like a lot. But it, but also... Do oh, I am. I am. Tourmaline the Whale. Nice. Yeah. Yes. You Absolutely. should definitely check them out. Amazing artist duo uh, based out of Florida. Nice. Cool. Awesome. Well, thank you all so much for listening. I've been Dan Johansson. I continue to be Maureen Smith. If you want to keep up with what we are up to, there are so many ways you can do that. The first is to head over to scopymag.com. That's our website. We post all of our articles there as well as all of our podcast episodes. You can also find us on social media on Facebook. We have a Facebook page called Scopy Magazine. We also have a Facebook group that we love and adore called Sounding Board. We've also set up a Discord, a Sounding Board Discord. I have no idea how you right now listening can just I don't think there's anything that you can just type to get onto that. So if you but if you wanted to be on it, I don't know, shoot me a message, I guess. I'll figure it out. I gotta figure out how to do it better. If oh. you know Discord really well, <laughs> reach out to me and tell me how to make that what I just did, that terrible thing I just did plugging Discord make, one, to help me one, make that better. One hell of a plug right there. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty bad. Um otherwise you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Tumblr under Scopy Mag. You can also find the podcast, the one you're listening to right now, under Scopy Radio in most places, including Google Play, iTunes Podcasts, and Radio Public. And I'm here as always to talk about the importance of subscribing. If you head to our website, scopymag.com and go to our subscribe page there are a couple ways that you can do that the first is to sign up for email blasts this is huge because even though we post across social media platforms facebook bears our content so if you want to see 100 percent of what we're doing and not just 30 percent of it you should sign up for those email blasts the second thing you can do is become a member for as little as two dollars a month you can help us keep our lights on and pay our artists if you're in a position to do, if you are in a position to do so, there are some cool incentives associated with it. So give it some thought. Also, we have merch available. And actually, Daniel, I'm deciding this on the fly. If you enter discount code 300th episode, you can get three dollars off any merch item. So cool. Check that out. Get your new favorite T-shirt. Great. Now guaranteed. I have to remember how to make a coupon. <laughs> <laughs> so look for that. Um, also, if you are a business or an entity or just have something fun to say and want to advertise with us, please feel free to reach out to us at scopymag at gmail.com. So give a little, give a lot. And if you can't give, then listen, participate, and share. Cool. Thanks again so much for listening. Go out and make something. <laughs>